Good morning. This is Ricky Jones and our podcast from Sunday to Monday. Jonathan is out of town this week, and instead of the normal podcast where I answer your questions, I'm going to play you the recording from our seminar last week called Handle with Care, Dealing with Depression. In this seminar, we are trying to address Christian questions about handling depression how to, and how to love people who struggle with depression and other mental issues. Many people have found it helpful, and I hope you do as well. After listening, please send us your questions, and I would love to answer those for you next week as best I can. As always, you can email those questions to info at riveroakstulsa.com. Father in heaven, I uh, thank you so much for giving us an open forum. Um, Father, I think the, the, the crowd in here shows that this is a topic that people are hungry for, and we want to be a church where the bruised reed is not broken and where the smoking flax is not extinguished. And I pray that we would, would be that. Uh, Father, I, I come representing a lot of people in this room who are good friends uh, or family members to people who struggle with depression and other kinds of disorders. And we come uh, with our hands out just going, we, we want to know how to do this better. We want to know how to love people better. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start out by reading uh, Isaiah, I mean, sorry, Psalm 42. A, a pretty good description of one of the psalmists going through depression. And then I'm going to read um, this article that was shared with a, by a friend who, that kind of explains what depression feels like. And then we're going to go through a little bit more of the kind of the teaching phase of the class. I'm going to talk about three types of depression, uh, things to say and not to say, which is, I find extremely helpful. I find the not to say things more helpful than the things to say. And then finally, um, we're going to look at a suicide scale, um, and I'll explain more about that at the time, but um, that's an important thing for us to do tonight, Okay. So that's kind of where we're going. Let's read first from uh, Psalm chapter 42. Uh, A beautiful yet sad description of what a lot of our friends feel. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng. I would lead them in the procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemies. 
As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The reason why I wanted to read that is because I think it's a, it's a great description of what a lot of our friends and people that we love uh, experience. You have this person here talking to himself, right? He's talking to his own soul. Soul, why, why are you so down? And I think that's important because for those of us who don't struggle with depression, we don't get it. We just, and that's, that's just kind of a, the, the first thing you need to admit. Like, we don't get it. So stop thinking that you do. <laughs> and, uh, and we, there's this kind of sense from people on the outside to kind of go, well, we don't mean it this way, but this is what we say. Basically, we're saying, buck up. Get over it. Uh, cheer up. As if you could just flip a switch and do that. And, and I think it's important to see that this is someone, he, he's looking at himself and he's saying, why are you so sad? Why, I can't fix this. Why can't I fix this? And, and a lot of the things he describes here are very accurate to those who, who uh, have struggled with depression and told me what it feels like. Uh, a sense of helplessness, um, of just crying. My tears have been my food. No appetite. Not, I don't want to eat. Food doesn't taste good to me. The only thing I have to eat is my own tears. All I want to do is cry in the day and at night. I'm not sleeping either. Um, my tears are, are just always there. Um, better days, memories of better days, instead of cheering me up, they just haunt me. It used to be better than this. It makes me feel sad. That doesn't make me feel better, sitting around reminiscing. It, does, it makes me actually feel even more cast down. Um, why are you cast down, broken, on the ground, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? That, that word for turmoil is like a, it's literally a going back and forth. It's an agitation. Uh, those who struggle with depression will describe that, the inability to concentrate. It's one of the reasons why... Um, any kind, when you're struggling with depression, any kind of decision, it feels like a torture. A looking at a menu is like death. Please don't make me choose. Um, you're just not settled. Uh, one writer describes it as monkey-brained. Um, your, your brain is like a monkey jumping around a tree. Um, where was it? Why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? He's, he's trying to talk himself out of it, which is actually, this is also a great model for, for learning positive self-talk. Um, he, he's not listening to the, the hopelessness from within. He's, he's reminding himself to put his hope in God. I shall again praise him. You know, but it, it, this is where it gets frustrating to the Christian, right? Verse five, we're like, yeah, hope in God. Please end it. <laughs> Please end this psalm now. When everybody, uh, no, here we go back. My soul is cast down within me. Um, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Uh, the feeling of being overwhelmed. Um, just, you know, and that's, a, that's a, actually a great picture. I can't improve on that. You know, if you've ever 
uh, gone body surfing and gotten into a wave that was just bigger than you meant for it to be, you know, and you're like, oh, I have sand in my chest now. I was overwhelmed and pushed down. And there was, you know, you just kind of get that sense when you're in that moment of, I'm just going to ride this out because I don't really have a choice. I'm going to ride this out and cover my face. And, um, and that's the feeling that those who struggle with depression have of, of just being overwhelmed and, and having no choice but to, to ride it out. Um, feeling of being forgotten. That's a great description. My God, my, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This feeling of being in the darkness. I think this is where Christianity and just kind of the typical solutions when they don't work, when the, when the trite solutions don't work, that's when we do more harm than good. And we want to say things like, well, have you gone to worship? Have you, uh, are you in a Bible study? Are you, uh, are you praying? Yes, I'm doing all those things. And God's not answering me. Um, and you feel forgotten by God. Um, verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's a, you, you begin to feel it in your body. Uh, most people get depression, have their pres- depression diagnosed when they come to a physician for other physical ailments. And as the, as the doctor kind of goes through their um, symptoms, they will diagnose them as being depressed, not having the flu or having a hangover, as, uh, which is kind of how it feels. Not that anybody here knows what a hangover feels like, but if you've ever like seen one on TV or something, you can imagine. Just kidding. Thank you for laughing. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again, the overwhelming drive, my, my heart for this class is to do two things. One is to convince Christians that mental illness exists. It's a real thing. Um, it seems like that would be a no-brainer, but it is not. Tuesday, I was teaching, no, Wednesday, I was sorry, not that you care. Wednesday, I was teaching in uh, Oklahoma City at a little Acts 29 get-together, and they asked me to teach on uh, how to take a day off, which is pretty funny when you're the expert on how to take a day off. I mean, like, I feel like I've kind of arrived, honestly, but um, that's what it was. It was how to take a day off, and um, but in I, and y'all know me by now, you know I do this. So I tend to just kind of casually drop references to speaking to my counselor and to taking Selexa because I know there are people out there who always feel guilty about those things. And every time I do that, somebody comes up to me. So at the end of this seminar, this, you know, this girl, I don't mean little girl in a pejorative way. She was a little girl. She was young to me. She's, you know, child, like she's probably 23. I just want to protect her and beat up anybody who hurt her. And she comes up to me and she says, well, you mentioned that you were taking pills. And I was like, yeah. I take Celexa. It's help, very helpful. When I don't take it, my wife gets mad at me. I take it for her, my wife, you see. I take it and everybody else in the world becomes better. It's fascinating. And she says, well, I, you know, I, I've been diagnosed, you know, with depression and 
My doctor really wants me to take this medicine, but my pastor tells me I shouldn't depend on anything but Jesus. I said, will you please bring, I said, will you please bring him to me so I can beat him up? Um, I, I get it, right? Like we really do, ha- I mean, that sounds so godly, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, it does. I don't want to make fun of it. It sounds, like that sounds right. Don't depend on anything but Jesus. And if you don't, parse that out, then, you know, you, you just throw this little aphorism out there, and from someone who is mentally healthy, throwing that out there is like, yeah, see, I don't depend on anything but Jesus, which isn't even true, probably. You just want to go, really? Well, let's tell you what, why don't you go three days without caffeine and get back to me? Um, but even with that, it's just different. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm talking to this girl and trying to make her feel better. Like, it's okay to take it. I don't care what your pastor says. It's okay to take it, you know. And so I started talking to her about the other medicines I take. I, I take four a day. Aren't you lucky to have such a healthy pastor? And, um, I was like, well, can I take my blood pressure medicine? That's, I depend on that. I depend on Jesus and my blood pressure medicine. If I didn't, I would stroke out most sermons. And that affects my personality. It, it really does. Can I, is it okay for me to take thyroid medicine? Because I guarantee you that affects my personality. Um, and I, my body doesn't make it. So is, is that okay? Like what, you know, where do we draw this line between what I can take and what I can't take? And I, I mean, I get it. I, I do understand that there's this fear. This, on, on, one hand, on one hand, it's a well-grounded fear that a lot of, psychiatric study and and psychology has been based on unbiblical understandings of of humanity and creation and anthropology. I I get all that. I'm not uh, Pollyanna. I don't think that everybody out there is sinless. I'm a Presbyterian. Everybody's sinful. I get it. But because I'm I'm Presbyterian and I believe everybody is, is sinful, I believe that everything about us is fallen. And that includes the hormones in our brains. And it's okay to fix those. And, you know, for centuries, godly people like Charles Spurgeon, who struggled with depression so badly that he had to take two or three months out of the year to, out of the pulpit to go to basically to escape the London winters because he would get so depressed in the London winters that he, they, they were worried he was going to commit suicide and they would send him off to, Flor- to not Florida, to France, uh, to the beach, kind of nice. Um, but just to, to try to keep him alive, you know, and, and, and he's depending on Jesus and he's begging the Lord to heal this. And in my mind, if we've had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians to beg the Lord to heal depression and he's done it, He's done it. Take the medicine. Like, you know the joke, right? The guy's standing on the roof and waters, floodwaters are coming up and he said, you know, the first boat, a boat comes by and says, you want to get, on, get in the boat? And he's like, no, God's going to save me. And another boat comes by. You want to get in our boat? No, God's going to save me. I'm trusting the Lord. And then a helicopter flies over, throws down a ladder. That's all right, I'm going to trust the Lord. And the guy drowns, gets to heaven, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Uh, you know, I mean, 
I, I really honestly feel like we're in that position. You know, the, we're saying, Lord, heal my depression. And he's saying, I've like, I've given you all 10 or 15 different medicines. Go to a doctor and take one. And we need to do that. I mean that with all the seriousness in my heart. We need to do that if it will help. That is not, is not a panacea. It needs to be done in, the, uh, in a relationship with a physician who knows you. And maybe uh, in, in relationship with um, a psychiatrist, I mean, or a psychologist of some sort, a therapist. But, it, but we need to, there's just nothing godly about being miserable. I'll just say that, okay? You are not, it, it is not, you're not helping anybody by being miserable. It's okay to feel better. You can quote me on that. Um, so, with that just kind of as an overview, do, is there any questions about that before I jump into kind of how depression feels for those of us who don't struggle with it? I think this is a, a helpful article. So, any questions so far? Okay. I realize that I haven't set a really great atmosphere. If you doubt, if you don't believe all the stuff I've just said, like, you're probably worried that I'm about to beat you up, but sorry. I get, I get protective when I have people getting beaten up by pastors. It bugs me. All right, 10 analogies that perfectly capture depression. I thought this was a great article. Um, it was in the, uh, the blog Scary Mommy. Uh, I guess that means she's a mom who struggles with depression. Um, but this is uh, 10 analogies. Uh, they they kind of describe, and I think it's helpful. Uh, the first one she describes, the symptom is irritability. And she says it's like having a sandpaper bed. You stand beside your bed. It looks comfortable. You're tired. You're dying to get in there and cover up. And you climb in. And you're startled by the feel of the sheets on your skin. They're rough like sandpaper. Your, your pillow is as hard as a rock. You roll over and nothing changes. The, the sandpaper hurts your skin. The rock pillow makes it impossible to relax. That's what it feels like to have this kind of irritability. Everything hurts. Everything bothers you. Uh, you and, and the frustrating thing is, <laughs> you know you shouldn't be, right? And so some well-meaning person comes along and says, well, relax. What's the big deal? And you're like, oh! If I could relax, I would. Uh, you wish with all your might you could relax and feel peaceful, uh, but it just won't happen. And, and, and that builds up, and you want to explode at everyone around you. Uh, you hold it in as best you can, uh, and you try to appear normal. Um, it's totally exhausting. Second one, uh, you feel empty. She says, it's like being at the worst comedy show ever, but everybody around you is laughing, and you just don't see anything funny. And you wish you could laugh, and the fact that everybody else around you is having fun makes you feel worse. It makes you feel uh, like you're the only, like you're a standout, like you're a cast out. And, and the one thing I want y'all to see, um, for those of you who do not struggle with this, I want you to see how many of these different symptoms makes the person who struggles with depression feel lonely. Um, and this is one, right? You, you, you wish with all your might you could enjoy yourself as much as everyone else, but your heart and mind are void of all feeling. Uh, you feel like someone has reached into you and ripped your soul out of your body. It's not fun, and you feel like you're a drag on everyone else who is having fun, so you don't want to be around them. Third, 
picture she gives is of a, of a 500-pound lead suit. You're wearing full-body armor made of lead. Uh, you try to go about your daily activities, but every movement requires tremendous effort. You want to move, you try your best to move, but it's exhausting. So you don't get as much done. How do you feel about yourself when you don't get as much done as you know you should have gotten done? Feel bad about yourself. And everybody's kind of looking at you like, didn't feel like getting dressed today? Um, Actually, one of the symptoms of severe depression is body odor because people... Uh, when they're struggling through this, don't even feel like taking a shower. Um, And again, it it becomes this spiral, this toilet bowl sucking you down because you don't feel like you're not able to do the normal everyday things that you know you should do. The fourth symptom she describes is self-loathing. It's like you've been tied with a rope to someone you really dislike. Um, you, you, You... Imagine there's somebody that you just can't stand being around. You hate them. Their personality just absolutely uh, wears against you at every moment, and you're tied to them. That's that's how a depressed depressed person feels about himself. They they hate themselves, and they can't get away from it. Um, during the, during the majority of depressive episodes, the sufferer thinks very negatively about themselves. They might even have feelings of self-hatred. Um, one thing to be aware of when, you, when you're in a relationship with someone like this who, who's struggling with this is they will withdraw, and you have to treat them differently than you treat people who don't struggle with depression. And what I mean is this. Um, Okay, so, you know, I've been here for 10 years. There are people here who've just been extremely helpful, like every day I've done something, right? And at some point in normal life, I hate to use the word normal, but go with me here. At some point in normal life, you, like, you stop saying thank you, right? You just kind of like, you know I really appreciate your contributions to the church. I'm not gonna call you every single time you, you do something. Like, you don't really expect me to, but, you know, I really do appreciate you. Um, when someone's struggling with depression, you have to go the extra mile, not because they're insecure. You have to go the extra mile to let them know that you appreciate what they're doing. Not because they're insecure and they think like, man, that hurt my feelings. He didn't thank me. How dare him not thank me? I'm never gonna do anything else for him again. But because he will assume that you don't want him around. And if you don't go that extra mile and say, I, I really appreciate you coming up here and doing this. I really I thank you for doing that. If you don't go that extra mile, send that extra, you know, respond to that email, respond to that text, their self-talk becomes so negative that they begin to think, oh, I guess he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. And you, by, without even knowing that you're being part of it, you can kind of uh, send people into that self-loathing. It's just something to be aware of, you know, um, that it, and this, and it, this plays into the next one. The next thing she describes is uh, guilt. You, this feeling that you bug everyone around you. This feeling that you bug everyone around you. Imagine all of a sudden your body grows huge, prickly whiskers that poke at everyone around you. You feel the need to apologize an awful lot. You'd probably feel pretty bad, guilty. Guilty for being prickly and whiskery. Um, depression brings on tremendous feelings of guilt. 
It makes you feel as though you are letting everyone down, that everyone is annoyed at you or disappointed with you. Matthew, do you mind turning on the air conditioner? I don't think they're going to come on, and I'm sweating. I don't care whether y'all are cool or not. I'm dying up here. Um, so this is something to be aware of. When someone is struggling with depression, they'll start apologizing to you a lot. I've, I've had this happen to me so often that I've had to tell people, you know, if you apologize to me again, I'm going to beat you up. Like, you've got to stop it. I'm not as violent as I make myself sound. I've never actually beaten anybody up in my whole life. Um, but, but that's something to, to watch out for. If someone starts apologizing to you needlessly, it's like, oh, he's going through a bad time. I need to be, be aware of this. Um, physical com- discomfort, we talked about this. Nausea and dizziness. Uh, depression makes you feel like you have a constant hangover or like you're coming down with the flu. Uh, many cases of depression are diagnosed only after the patient has sought medical help for physical symptoms. Um, confusion. Depression often feels like you like you're, are surrounded by a glass that's hard to see through and hard to hear through. Focusing on anything becomes hard. Like I said, looking at a menu, you're, you can't keep your mind to concentrate. You find yourself holding your head in your hands all the time. Your vision literally blurs. Um, you have a strong desire to hide. Um, you know the feeling you get when, when someone calls you and you know it's a telemarketer, right? You have this desire to hide. Or if someone's knocking on the door and you know it's Jehovah's Witness, right? And you're trying your best to not let them know that you're in the house. Um, someone with depression feels that way pretty much all the time. Um, you know, I have, I have friends who struggle with depression and they laugh at me. I'll call them and then they'll text me back. Like, you didn't think I was going to answer that, did you? You know. Um, and uh, there's just no desire to answer the phone or the door. They don't want to get groceries. They don't want to go to your party. And this is why this, coupled with the, the self-loathing, all this stuff works together, of course, and the guilt, this is why it's not helpful to say, if you're struggling, let me know. They will never let you know. It's why it's not helpful to say, hey, just call me if you need anything. They, they, literally, I have depressed friends who talk about staring at the telephone. It takes 30 minutes to get their, their energy up to make a phone call. Um, two more. A dread. Uh, it's like, she says, it's like having a colonoscopy looming every minute of the day. <laughs> that would be pretty awful. Uh, you always feel like something unpleasant lies in the near future. Uh, dread from depression um, it, it just has reasons that you can't explain it. Um, if, you know, she says, if you knew that you, if you're experiencing dread and you knew it was a colonoscopy, you'd feel fine about that. Like, well, I'm having a colonoscopy. But if you're, con- oh, thank you so much. It feels so much better. Um, but if you're having feelings of dread and you can't explain them, that makes it even worse. And the final thing uh, is, is Hopelessness. Um, imagine being trapped in a tank of deep water. Uh, you start getting tired of treading water. You're not sure how much longer you'll be able to keep your head above water. You try to conserve your energy. You pray someone will come along and help, but you're just so tired. Nobody's coming to save you because nobody notices you need help. Desperately, you pull to the surface, surface and gasp for air and sink back down again. You aren't going to make it. You've lost all hope. Desperation is very lonely, and it feels like a desperate battle to feel alive. 
And, and that's, what, this, that's what we're doing in this class. We don't want our friends to feel lonely anymore. We want them to know that we are here for them and, um, and to learn how to communicate that. Okay? Any questions about that? I got two more things I'm going to go through with you, and then I'm going to bring up the panel. So, okay. All right. So let's look at um, I've, just briefly. There are three kinds of, of depression, and I think it's helpful to kind of think about them all, uh, think about them separately, because if you put them all together, uh, a lot of times. The worst thing you can say if you don't know what you're doing, the worst thing you can say is, I know how you feel, okay? You don't know how anybody else feels. Nobody knows how anybody else feels. And just because you've been sad, maybe you've been really sad. I'm not trying to discount your grieving. That does not mean you know how it feels to struggle with depression. And even if you have struggled with depression, you haven't struggled with it in the same way that this person is struggling with it. So just don't say that. It makes people feel like you're giving them short shrift, like you're not really... Um, <laughs> like you're not really paying attention. And there's this fear. Anytime we're talking to somebody about a disease or a, an issue, uh, we want to get a really quick, short answer. It was funny, last night, um, or not last night, Friday night, there's some of us were out to dinner, and uh, David, who's a EMT, was talking about taking a thyroid cancer off of somebody who's otherwise healthy. And one of the ladies at the table was like, David, what causes that? You know, she just kind of jumps immediately like, you know, you can just see this fear in her eyes of, I want to control that. You know, what, tell me why that happened because I want to control that. And sometimes when people are struggling with depression, we want to go like, oh, well, you just have that because you have a bad diet. And what we're really saying is, I don't want to feel like you feel. And so if, if I can convince myself that eating a proper diet will keep me from feeling the way you feel, then I, I'm just going to say this real quick and we're going to move on to happier conversations. Um, and that, that, I can't even put into words how harmful that is. I know we've all done it, okay? That's harmful. Um, yes, proper diet and exercise helps everybody, but it's not going to cure true clinical depression, um, so I want you to understand that there are different types. Uh, one type is uh, called biochemical depression. It's just purely a lack of hormone. It is, uh, there, there are different hormones in the brain. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to try to talk like one. But sometimes they're just not there. They're just not there the way they need to be. And it's not anybody's fault. Sometimes you're just born that way. Sometimes... Uh, Different life events will cause it, uh, postpartum depression, um, a trauma, brain trauma, uh, all of those, those kinds of things uh, just cause a lack of, of, of the proper hormones in your brain. Uh, I think when I went through my, my uh, thyroid burning out, I went through some types of depression. That would, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Nod your head, thank you. Uh, so, you know, and, it's, and again, and the, the weird thing about depression is you want to sit and try to think your way out of it. And everybody thinks that you should be able to think your way out of it. Just think happy thoughts. And you're never going to do that if the problem is biochemical. Sometimes the, the only, and, and the, the way to deal with that, uh, the, the doctors will talk about self-responsibility. Your self-responsibility for that is to accept it, is to take the medicine. 
that is taking responsibility. Take the medicine. Um, and, and to live with that. And that may, that may very probably be for life. The brain changes. You'll need to be in um, a relationship with a physician to talk as your brain changes. And you'll need to go back regularly. And, uh, you know, and that's between you and your physician. I wish you could just kind of get a prescription and everything be perfect for the rest of your life. If I had that pill, I would give it to you. A second kind of depression is trauma-based depression. That can be uh, when anything that overwhelms your personal defenses. It can be a death in the family. It can be a move. It can be uh, losing a job. Uh, It happens to a lot of people when they retire. Uh, It happens um, when a spouse dies to a lot. And and that can, uh, it can be an accumulation. um, And you have to... um, kind of get, they get pulled out of that. That can be treated with therapy. can also be treated with medication temporarily. That would be uh, people who just need to take something for six months or so to kind of um, just kind of get out of it. I, I describe that kind of depression like um, if you're wearing, you've been wearing your sunglasses all day and it, it clouds up and so it's not sunny anymore and you don't really need your sunglasses anymore, but you don't recognize that it's clouded up. And you look at the clouds and you think, oh my, it's going to be the worst storm ever in history. And then you take your sunglasses off and you're like, oh no, it's not. It's not that bad. You know, the clouds are still there, but your perspective on it has changed. That's kind of trauma-based depression. And and the the medicine that they give you for that kind of helps take those sunglasses off for just a few months. If you're going through a divorce, if you're going through, like my father-in-law, when his uh, wife passed away, um, kind of got into that. Uh, there's different levels of self-responsibility at that point. Sometimes you just have to grieve. Sometimes you need therapy. Sometimes you need to embar- uh, embrace your powerlessness to, to change the past. Um, when you have, to, you have to recognize that it's not my fault. Third type of uh, depression is, is action-based or moral-based, uh, a spiritual depression. This hits people when they are doing something that violates their own moral code. Um, and therefore, they're, they're pouring guilt upon themselves. This happens to people. Uh, ad, uh, addicts will suffer from this a lot. It's very shame-related. Uh, if, if you know that you're doing something bad and yet you can't seem to stop doing it, you, you get kind of thrown into this depression, which really helps the addiction. The depression is kind of right there with it. But those two things tend to feed each other. Um, eating disorders, uh, affairs, uh, pornography. Um, this is just a great list, isn't it? Um, I had one, and then I forgot it. But anyway, I think I've given you enough examples. It, when, when this one really gets, if you want to just see the real, just the ugliness of, of life, uh, a lot of times this happens to girls who have been uh, taken advantage of. They feel guilty for that, and they, they turn that loathing on themselves and become sexually immoral for a period. And, this depre- and they feel depressed about that, and the only thing that makes them feel better is the affirmation they get when they're being sexually immoral, and that becomes a real ugly spiral that I've seen a lot in the ministry. Um, it's kind of awful. And, and the only way you can really treat that is, is through confession and therapy. It doesn't have to, it, that, that's where ministers actually can help. We can help sometimes. Um, 
but ultimately, you, you have to stop the actions that violate your morals. That sounds easy. It's not. So a lot of times that takes a lot of confession. It takes accountability and affirmation. So, um, all right, I've talked for now for about 30 minutes. So I'm going to stop. I did not get through as much as I wanted to, but I want to let the people who've prepared uh, some stuff to say, let them talk. And... Um, I've got to give you this sheet, though. Okay. Hang in there. I'm gonna, let me go through one more page, and then we're going to... I'm probably going to put suicide off to next week, next time, okay? Let me just say why I want to talk about suicide, though, because I don't want you... To, I want you to come back for it. And, and basically, it's this. And I want to say this with the right amount of gravity, but not in a way that's going to force people into a terrible place, okay? So let me... Just trust me. I'm going to get there. Um, my mom, you know, I live one block from cancer treatment centers, which is not that interesting, except for, the, you know, you're always kind of meeting people who go there. Somebody was driving all the way to cancer treatment centers from Dresden, Tennessee, because he had um, pancreatic cancer, right? And, uh, and they were, and, and they do a great job at, at making people feel very well taken care of. Um, my mom, I, so I would go see him, right? Because he's always from my hometown. He's one of the 800 people there. And so, you know, it was kind of good. Like he really enjoyed seeing somebody new. So one time I went to see him, visited with him for an hour, gave him a gift bag, came back to the house. My mom asked, how's he doing? And I said, well, mommy's dying. And she was like, really? Yeah, that's, that's where pancreatic cancer ends. It, that's just where it ends. And I'm not trying to be the bad guy. You know, you feel, because nobody tells you that. Nobody does. And if you don't believe that, ask Dixon Williams. It's the thing that drives him the craziest about being a hospitalist. But nobody's ever willing to tell you kind of where things end. Okay, I say all that to say this. Clinical severe depression will not heal itself. It, it just, it's not going to just get better. Uh, even though we desperately wish it would. And just like pancreatic cancer leads to death, just like you know, kidney cancer leads to renal failure, depression oftentimes leads to suicide. It, okay, I'm going to sum it up my courage and say this. Clinical depression will lead to suicide if it is not arrested. It is a big deal. And you need to take it seriously. You need to take it seriously in your family. And you need to deal with it to arrest it as soon as possible. It's just not going to fix itself. I am the king of let things take care of themselves and it'll probably be fine. The, 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 the phrase that comes out of my mouth more than any other is it'll probably be fine. If someone is, is struggling with clinical depression, it will not be fine. Do not ignore it. Okay, so we're, we're going to talk about how to recognize suicidal tendencies, kind of where that gets to um, next week and and in two weeks. Thank you for listening to From Sunday to Monday. I hope this has been helpful. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Have a good day.